Thank you very much. A couple of years ago, I was upstairs in the library going through copies of old letters trying to find out a little bit more about this often forgotten figure, trying to understand what motivated him, trying to understand, in some cases, the old German script. It's 2005, the Center for Jewish History in New York, and Daniel Charles is giving a speech about a man he's dedicated years of his life to researching. The first question is, why would it be worth getting acquainted, spending time with a man who lived so long ago and so far away? Why, especially when he seems at first glance like a thoroughly repellent figure, a kind of monster? The monster he's talking about is a man called Fritz Haber, a German chemist in the 1900s with a bizarre legacy. So he was born in 1868 in a city that is now in Poland, the city that was then called Breslau in Prussia, at the dawn on the eve of German unification, at the dawn of uh, the Second German Empire. He was a talkative young man. He was an ambitious young man. Talkative and ambitious, traits that served Fritz well. It seemed he had a real capacity for single-mindedness and grew up to become an incredibly focused and successful chemist. And then the First World War broke out. Haber throws himself into the war effort. He moved to Berlin and became, in the words of his uh, friend, uh, Richard Wilstetter, another chemist, he went from a great scientist to a great German. With some professional successes under his belt, Haber started moving in the upper echelons of society, which he loved. And he became hugely invested in the German war effort. By 1915, Haber was displeased to see that the war had become something of a stalemate, with much of the fighting bogged down in trench warfare. And he wanted to do something to help. So he went to the German high command with an idea. He said, well, if we're stuck with soldiers in trenches and machine guns have no way of driving the enemy soldiers out of the trenches, well, I have a solution. And he proposed chlorine. Haber was a chemist, so his solution was chemical. Chlorine irritates the lining of the lungs so much that if you breathe it in, you start producing phlegm and can't stop. In fact, you produce so much phlegm that your lungs fill up with it and you can't breathe. You drown in your own mucus. The German generals weren't convinced at first. It didn't seem a very honourable form of combat. But Fritz persisted, and eventually they said he could have a trial run as long as he organised it himself. So, cut to... Spring of 1915. And there he was, on the front line in Ypres, Belgium, with a team of scientists and troops setting out gas valves behind him. It was a cold morning, and Fritz, a bald, dome-headed man, was wearing his distinctive small round glasses and a big fur coat. He gestured, and the valves on almost 6,000 tanks of chlorine gas were opened. The gas moved at around one metre per second, a huge 15-foot ghostly green wall scouring the land, leaving deadened grass in its wake. It hit the trenches of the enemy and was immediately effective. A new weapon was born. The face of modern warfare changed forever. And thousands upon thousands of men ended up dying horribly in the mud. This was a huge breakthrough for Haber and his first contribution to the German military. His second contribution happened posthumously. And there is this macabre footnote to the whole story. Of course, despite the effectiveness of chlorine gas, Germany lost the war which devastated Haber. And once the Nazis started to gain power, he was forced to flee his beloved country. 
Remember, Daniel Charles, the man who's dedicated his life to researching Fritz Haber, was giving his speech at the center of Jewish history in New York. Haber was Jewish. During World War I, as part of his work with poison gas, he also became interested in the uses of poison gas as insecticide for insect control. There was a whole unit of his institute that got involved with insect eradication in various military facilities and granaries and factories and so forth. And they came up with a formulation toward the end of the war that they called uh, Zyklon. Zyklon. It was deadly. It was also odorless, so they added a warning smell to make it safer to use when applying it as a pesticide. They called it Zyklon A. But the Nazis, who took over Haber's lab, decided to remove the warning smell. And they called that... Zyklon B, which might sound familiar. It was the gas they used to murder millions of people during the Holocaust, including several members of Haber's own family. I think it's fair to say that Haber, this intelligent and ambitious man, had a catastrophically terrible impact on the world. But what makes him so fascinating is that this isn't the whole story. Sure, he developed a weapon so inhumane that in 1918 he was tried for war crimes... But he also, that very same year, was nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize for his contributions to society. This is because, before the war had occupied his formidable focus, Haber had been set on solving a different problem. Germany was running out of food. If it's hard to comprehend that a country could just run out of food, that's because the world produces so much these days. But that was exactly the problem faced by Germany at the turn of the 20th century. Their population was approaching 60 million people and they calculated that they would only be able to grow enough food for around 30 million. That's a lot of empty plates. Haber wanted to help. And as with the war, his contribution was chemical. He was a scientist, so he broke the problem down and studied the building blocks of nature. Plants need nitrogen to grow, but their supply is limited to what's in the soil and that takes time to replenish. Annoyingly, there is nitrogen all around in the air, but plants can't breathe it in, so they can't use it. Until Haber had a breakthrough, he found a way to combine nitrogen with hydrogen and turn it into a liquid. And what can you do with a liquid? You can pour it all over the soil. It's called ammonia, and it works as artificial fertiliser, which is one of the single most transformative inventions ever. It meant that the amount of food farmers could grow increased exponentially, and growing populations could be fed not only in Germany, but all over the world. It's thought that as many as two out of every five humans alive today owe their existence to Fritz Haber. There was a student of his, a protege, who in the 50s decided to take on the job of writing Fritz Haber's biography, a German man named Johannes Jennecke. And for decades, he laboured on this task. He worked and worked and collected and collected and never produced a thing. He just could not write. Or perhaps he couldn't come to terms with sort of the ambiguity of his mentor's legacy, the darkness and the light. This is the reason why it's worth knowing about a man who, as Daniel Charles said, is otherwise repellent, almost a monster. This ambiguous legacy, the darkness and the light the Nobel Peace Prize and the War Crimes Tribunal. Cultivation and destruction. War and food. It's so contradictory. Or is it? 
My name is Tilly Robinson, and you're listening to The Water We Swim In, a seven-part mini-series that explores what system change really means. Each episode investigates a story that helps us understand the way our society has been designed, so we can see the invisible forces leading us towards the climate crisis. Because in order to know where you're going, you first need to know where you stand and how you got there. Last week, we looked at our propensity to focus on the effects rather than the causes, and why this approach leaves us feeling disempowered, even bored. In this episode, we're going to find out why we struggle to see the bigger picture, and exactly how much bigger that picture is. To do that, we're going further back in history than any other episode, down to the roots of our relationship with nature, and finding out what believing in a soul has to do with our agricultural model. Part one, the meeting place of life. Fritz Haber's life and legacy may sound contradictory and strange, when it's considered in isolation. But if you take a broader look at the industries he contributed to, agriculture and war, you actually start to see that they're not so different. Harper's invention, ammonia, turned out to have a double use. It also made a pretty mean explosive. In fact, when the First World War broke out, newly built agricultural factories stopped making fertiliser and just started making bombs instead. I mean, they already had the ingredients. And the same gas that was used on soldiers was then used as a pesticide, which were used everywhere. And the pesticides were even sprayed over the fields using the same fighter planes from war. It wasn't just the technology that was shared. The mindset sort of carried over too. A warfare that will know no armistice. Man's civilization, his future, his very life are at stake. That's a line from a farmer's manual talking about eradicating pests from crops. In some publications, insects were referred to as 50 billion German allies. The war against the Germans had been won, and much of that intense wartime productivity was redirected towards a new goal, food production. And it just so turned out that the technology and the infrastructure were two sides of the same coin. Environmental historian Edmund Russell is one of the few people to have researched this link. He writes, War and nature co-evolved at this time. The control of nature expanded the scale of war, and war expanded the scale on which people controlled nature. We created an infrastructure around a single type of industry and split them. Armed with the advances of modern technology and a wartime mindset, the modern agricultural system that was built is nothing short of astounding. And it's given us unimaginable plenty. Avocado has become one of the world's trendiest foods. Traditionally cured Scottish gravel-like salmon. Dude, that's pretty spicy. And the saltiness of the cheese against the sweetness of the tomatoes is wonderful. Raven apple and sage stuffing wrapped in maple-cured bacon. Pretty much half a cow there. Lobster from the South China Sea. (laughs) Perfect with beer. And for a long time, it worked really, really well. Breathe in, stretch out, as we meet the world's most famous yoga guru. Uh, His spiritualist techniques have gained him a following of millions across the world. We welcome Sadhguru. Welcome. Thank you very much. An episode of This Morning from last year. The hosts are talking to Sadhguru, who has a yoga and spirituality foundation as well as a popular YouTube channel. Sadhguru was sitting on the This Morning sofa looking resplendent with a white turban, a long white beard and this huge scarf spread out over his legs that makes him look like he's wearing giant pantaloons. Philip Schofield tries his usual interview style, but I think it's fair to say he finds it quite hard. Sadhguru doesn't 
do chit-chat answers. Most watch Yogi on YouTube, 2.5 billion views in the last year alone. Is this, do you think, because we are all now looking for some kind of inner peace? Peace can only be inner, or all human experience can only be inner. Whether pain or pleasure, joy or misery, agony or ecstasy only happen within you. Mm. Yeah, his answers are deep, as you'd expect from a guru. And it's not long before he starts steering the conversation in the direction of what he's really there to talk about. Soil. One massive problem which everybody is avoiding talking about for whatever their own reasons, I don't want to get into the politics of it, but 71% of the world's land is under farming, all right? And that is in a super bad condition right now, to a point where UN agencies are pointing out you just have 60 to 80 harvests left, which is 45 to 55 or 60 years' time. If by 2040, very clearly every responsible scientist is saying we will be producing 40% less food than what we are producing right now, and our populations will be well over 9 billion. That's not a world you want to live in. So what's the answer? That's not a world you want to leave your children in? No. Because you're asking for the answer because you got the point, but most people are not getting it, that's why I'm talking about their children. Yeah. At least there you must get it. Why I'm doing this is because people are not understanding the urgency of mm. what it is. Mm. People are thinking, ah, oh, any number of issues are there. One, all UN agencies, World Food Programme clearly predicts by the time it is 2035, there'll be dozens of civil wars across the world mm. because of food shortages. Yeah. And we're London City next. right now, thousands of years of civilization, all right? Mm. Three days, if there is no food for 50% of the people, your civilization will evaporate in three days' time. Your humanity will evaporate in three days' time. Mm. Wow. Um, you, sorry, were, you have, no, unfortunately, because I think you've got to get yeah. off to the uh, Indian High Commission, um, uh, we've, uh, you've, the, this 100-day motorcycle journey um, inspiring the world, hopefully... It's quite an awkward interview. The earnest warning jars with that standard daytime telly chit-chat. I mean, what do you say when someone is telling you that soon you'll run out of food and when that happens, your civilised society will crumble into violence? Now onto Gino teaching us how to make a quick pasta allo forno? But there Sadiguri was saying that we might have only 60 harvests left. This is, by all accounts, very alarming. And yet, I don't know about you, but I haven't seen many alarm bells being rung. Do we really only have 60 harvests left? It's a pretty bold claim to make at 9am on that teal sofa. And food production doesn't seem to be slowing down. Food is still flooding in from all sides, thanks to Fritz Harbour. But I thought it was a claim worth examining. So I decided to go to the source, where Sadhguru said he got his information. I decided to talk to the UN. By the way, in case it's not already obvious, I'm not someone who's always having chats with the United Nations. And the United Nations really isn't in the habit of having chats with unofficial bodies. But after several emails back and forth, interviews and lawyers, this unofficial body ended up at the UNCCD, the United Nations Convention to Combat Desertification. Okay, um, so good afternoon today. Um, my name is Abdul Salam Bello. I'm Senior Project Manager at the United Nations Convention to Combat Desertification. Abdul is the sort of man who knows what's going on. He and I spoke for about an hour. A very busy man, basically. <laughs> um, uh, busy, I don't know, but uh, I'll try. <laughs> 
he told me that soil degradation or land degradation is basically where the quality of soil drops to such an extent that you can't grow anything in it. And then in a worst case scenario, that leads to something called desertification, where the soil sort of turns into dirt and just blows away. And so when we talk about desertification, definitely it speaks to uh, definite loss of that land that has become totally not usable, actually, either for the human being or for the animals or for the ecology going forward. Okay, I see. And so what would you say is the, the scale of this issue at the moment? Is there much desertification going on? Yes, if the rates of uh, the way we are using or working, addressing the, the land, if we keep that trend, to give you an idea of the magnitude, by 2050, we will face about 95% of uh, lands on the planet that will be degraded. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. I, I didn't realise yes. I didn't realise it was that soon. Yes, in 30 years, actually, yes. 95% of our food is grown in soil. And according to Abdul and the UNCCD, in 28 years, 95% of that soil will be degraded. So I got my answer. Our soil is in big trouble. But why? To find out, I talked to Anna Krauzanska, assistant professor at the University of Twente in the Netherlands. The first thing you should know about Anna is that she has this incredibly kind, warm, likeable face, which is very reassuring when you've just been talking about desertification and civilization collapse. The second thing you should know about her is that she loves talking about soil. And I mean, she really loves it. So... I would describe myself as an environmental social scientist and for the last four years now, I think it is, I have been completely and utterly obsessed with soil and everything that has to do with soil. The reason that Anna is so obsessed with soil is because of how vitally important it is. I mean, the the short answer is very simple. No soil, no life. Soil is just the condition of... Um, existence on the dry surface of the planet. We could think of soil as um, the place where all the most important life-supporting relationships happen. So I really like to think about soil as this meeting place. Soil allows life to happen because it connects all the important things. It's the meeting place, as Anna says. And there's this whole complex world going on inside it, A mix of materials, organic matter, carbon, water, teeny tiny living things. In fact, there's 50,000 different organisms in one gram of healthy soil. And it's these organisms that make soil, soil, rather than just lifeless mud. Because, make no mistake, soil is very much alive. But unfortunately, we're acting like it isn't. Our modern agriculture is based on the model of a relationship with soil in which we take things away. And then we try to give them back. So we take away the nutrients in the form of a crop. And then we give them back, but in a different form, in the form of chemicals. That magical fertiliser that Harbour developed is amazing in that it boosts the amount we can grow in soil. But it is just a chemical substitute. And over time, that makes soil weaker because it's not getting what it really needs. 
the structure of the soil starts to collapse, which means all the pockets that hold important things like oxygen, carbon and water get washed away. And without those things, organisms die. And these little microscopic biological exchanges, the ones that are fundamental to life, stop happening. Soils degrade when they're no longer connected to everything that they need to be connected to. Soils degrade when they can't perform this function as the meeting place. This is what soil degradation is. The biology of the soil no longer performing as it needs to. And because of that, you need to keep feeding it more and more synthetic fertilisers in order to keep crops growing. It's kind of like a drug addict needing a bigger and bigger fix of the drug that's killing them in order to function. And it means that we're losing a lot of healthy soil. In fact, topsoil, which is this alive bit where all of the stuff happens, takes a hundred years to form an inch. And we've lost half the topsoil on the planet since the turn of the century. So Sadhguru was right, we are in trouble. And it's because our agricultural model, with all of its scientific advancement, its technology, its power, seems to fundamentally misunderstand the soil it farms. And if we keep going as we are, we could be faced with that almost inconceivable notion of running out of food. Why are we here? Why are we in this position? What if I told you that the answer goes back further than Fritz Haber? further than our military and agricultural industries becoming intertwined. What if I told you that Fritz Haber wasn't the cause of all this, but rather the logical consequence of foundations laid years before? To really understand how we arrived at this problem and to understand what we need to do about it, it turns out we need to go back to the beginning, right down to our deepest roots. Part 2 the roots of reductionism. It's almost like, imagine if somebody built a house on a, a flawed foundation, you know, but it was just a kind of a small house, like one or two stories, and there were cracks in the foundation, but it didn't really make much of a difference for that one or two layers. But then imagine that over time, that house got built on and built on and built on until it became basically like a skyscraper, but the foundations were still faulty. This is award-winning author Jeremy Lent. Jeremy has these thick lens glasses that make his big eyes look even bigger and more curious than they already are. And he is a curious man. A lot of us want our life's work to have meaning, but Jeremy wanted meaning so much that he ended up researching for about 15 years how humans go about creating it. And all that work went into his two incredible books about the cognitive patterns that have shaped society since we were hunter-gatherers. So if there's a reason we're struggling to understand something as a society... And I reckon Jeremy's your best bet to pinpoint why that is. And that is really what I see as where we're at right now. When there's, there was flawed ideas, basically, about, like, about the universe that led us onto a path these last few, basically 500 years or so, um, which at first, actually, even though they might have been flawed, they were so effective at different things that it led to a lot of success. But now we're living in a place where those initial relatively small problems with the foundation have become massive gaping fissures in our civilizational trajectory. And that's why we need to understand them so well. Jeremy thinks we've been on a wonky path for a while now. So let's go back to the beginning. First, though, I just want to try a little experiment. I'm just going to tell you a simple story and then follow it up with a question. 
It's the same scenario in question that a psychologist posed to the participants of a study. And the answer might give us some insight into that foundational way of thinking that Jeremy was talking about. Okay, so the story starts with a man called Richard. Richard is a 37-year-old history teacher, and one morning he's driving to school, tired and stressed, because the night before he'd had a huge fight with his wife about her suspected affair, and he skipped breakfast that morning to try and do some last-minute prepping for his students. At a busy junction, he leans over to close the passenger window, and his foot slips on the accelerator. The car shoots forward into a telephone pole, and he's thrown through the windshield and hits the pavement, dying pretty much immediately. Now, here is your question. Do you think Richard wishes that he'd kissed his wife goodbye before he left for work that morning? The interesting thing about this question is what your answer depends upon. Was your knee-jerk reaction, yes, of course, because he loves her, or no, he doesn't because he no longer exists? It sort of comes down to whether or not you believe in consciousness after death, right? I mean, this is what the study was about, understanding our beliefs. The study posed a longer version of the story and then a whole series of questions, and the answers generally followed along the pattern you'd expect. Religious or spiritual participants answered in favour of continued consciousness, and atheists answered no. But here's the thing. Not always. Some participants who stated an explicit belief that death is final struggled to reflect that in their answers and said things like, yeah, of course he wishes he kissed his wife this morning. One participant, when asked whether Richard knew he was dead, answered... Yeah, he'd know. I mean, I don't believe in an afterlife. It's non-existent. But he would see that now. And it is weirdly easy to get muddled. When you are answering the question, even if you reason no, did a small part of you feel conflicted about it? Like, for some reason, it's really hard for us to believe in our gut that who we are, our essence, is just cells and tissues and neurological signals that can be cut off in a moment. And that is perhaps because the concept of a soul or of a consciousness that exists separately to the body is deeply rooted within our society. And according to Jeremy, this stems all the way back to 400 BC. Athens, to be exact. Picture a lot of Greek men in robes trying very hard to figure out life. What's its purpose? What are the rules that govern it? Are there universal truths? And one of these men you've probably heard of, a guy with a big white beard called Plato, It's hard to overstate Plato's influence on society. His philosophy would essentially become the foundation for European thought over the next two millennia. And his main thing was that he believed that the soul and the body were two separate entities. This is called dualism. And despite its familiarity now, it was a very new idea to most people at the time. Plato posited that there were two realms, the eternal, ideal dimension, which only the soul could inhabit, and then the changeable, material dimension where our bodies existed. According to Plato, we were trapped in this material dimension until we discovered the truth, the sort of capital T, truth, whereupon we would be rewarded with eternal life in the ideal dimension. And understanding the truth was achievable through our capacity for abstract reasoning, so it was this that gave us a soul. Our bodies were just cumbersome things to be shed, tomb-like, he put it. So, the soul and the body are separate, and one holds more value than the other. And this is where the idea first took hold. Its reach really permeated Western culture, though, when it became an integral part of the most practiced religion in the world. About 400 years after Plato, a man known as Jesus Christ was born, lived a pretty eventful life, and died, and then, depending on your version of events, came back. 
And over the next few hundred years, a new grassroots religion was formed around his teachings. Christianity. And many of the church elders who were involved in this formation had previously belonged to some extremely dualistic religious sects. In fact, these sects were so committed to dualism, to the division between spiritual and material, that they loathed the human body. Monks wouldn't watch each other eat, not wanting to witness such base bodily needs, and the women weren't allowed to bathe in case they accidentally saw their own body. The body was, and I quote, a filthy bag of excrement and urine. The material world in general was considered an uncompromising evil that actively obscured God's love. It's hardly a surprise, then, that Christianity went on to teach us a distaste for our physical bodies and a desire to escape the physical world which holds no inherent value. This is what Jeremy Lent calls a root metaphor. A root metaphor shapes our internal understanding of the universe, and so it ripples out, having profound effects on culture and society. It's the foundation to the skyscraper that he mentioned earlier. So it's a foundational belief, but why is it important? How has this belief affected our agricultural approach? Well, if we saw the physical as having no inherent value, including our own bodies, how do you think the natural world was seen? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. The reading that we have not read yet, or a lot of people haven't read yet, for Vespers tonight is containing the most important scripture in all of scripture, the most important verse. So if somebody asks you, what's the most important scripture? You can say, it's from Genesis. And it's when it says, let us make man according to our own image and likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the flying creatures of the earth, over the cattle and all the earth, and over all the reptiles that creep on the earth. When God creates man and woman in his image, he created them. He told them to fill the earth and subdue it, and twice said that he gives us dominion, authority over the created order. So that it is not Gus that has dominion over the world, it is me and you. We're the ones with dominion. We exercise authority. We are the ones who bring order into chaos. It's not animals. Animals are chaotic. We bring order into their chaos. If the soul is what gives value, and nature is just material, then surely nature has no inherent value. It exists only to serve us. This thinking is what formed the metaphor at the foundations of Western thought. Nature has no inherent value. It is ours to conquer and control. Here's Jeremy again. Because, um, and that's the thing is that it's really, these ideas can be so deeply embedded in us that we don't actually even realize we're making presumptions about them. And that's what I describe actually as like a worldview. Like, so we have a dominant worldview. And a worldview is a little bit like a lens through which we see the world. And just like we see the world through our eye, which is a lens, but we don't realize it's a lens. In fact, it's doing all kinds of distortions to the world the way it is, but then it makes sense to us because that's the pattern of meaning we put into it. A root metaphor is very powerful because it's the lens through which we see. And this means it doesn't just affect our philosophical framing of the world around us. It affects the way we investigate it. In fact... It shaped our entire scientific model. I think, therefore, I am. And this starts with Descartes, a French philosopher in the 17th century, 
he kind of modernised the split of dualism, theorising that the mind is the source of our true identity and our bodies, again, are mere matter with no intrinsic value. Sounds familiar. The difference was that by the 1600s, people were making complicated machinery, like clockwork, so Descartes could update the metaphor. Our bodies weren't just material, they were machines. I do not recognize any difference between the machines made by craftsmen and the various bodies that nature alone composes. Descartes hypothesized that if God was our architect, then our bodies, and the natural world, must operate according to a rational set of laws that he designed, like a machine. And this idea was revolutionary in terms of scientific investigation. Because if you want to understand a machine, what do you do? You take it apart. You separate the pieces down to the smallest component, analyse them and then put them back together. And so this, the idea that nature worked like a machine, was the scientific foundation upon which Europe entered the Enlightenment. And it stuck, because it worked. And it's still the basis for how we approach things scientifically today. It's called reductionism. We break a complex phenomena or entity down to their elementary parts, study those, often as separate specialties, and then draw conclusions about the whole thing, just like you would a machine. Reductionism operates on the assumption that, like a machine, a whole is the sum of its parts. So by understanding the parts, we can then predict how the whole will behave, and, if we like, interfere and alter that behaviour or outcome. It gives us understanding, and it gives us control. And boy, has it been successful. By isolating nature's building blocks and analysing them down to the tiniest detail, scientists have been able to split the atom, create powerful computers, analyse and change the structure of a human genome. And breaking things down is exactly what Fritz Haber did. He analysed the chemical processes involved in fertilisation and mimicked that life-giving capacity by extracting nitrogen from the air, changing the way we grow food forever. So... How did this root metaphor shape the world? Well, dualism gave us the desire to conquer nature. And reductionism gave us the ability to do so. And it's given us unparalleled progress. I mean, it's given us longer, more comfortable lives, endless food, pleasure, ease and exploration. It's helped us build our house sky high. But it's also why the whole thing is in danger of falling down is an attack on nature. Wildlife charities say it's an assault on nature. Already, 41% of UK plants and animal species are in decline. 58% percent of Half a million insect species are threatened with extinction. Fish are in trouble. But problems aren't unique in loose forest areas the size of 27 football fields Almost 31% of the world's fish populations are overfished. Every year, we fish 90 million tons of wild fish globally. A new study has found that over the past decade, the world's insect populations have reduced by 41%. Beekeepers all over the world have seen an annual loss of 32-90% of their colonies. In the past 27 years, the total biomass of all flying insects in northwestern Europe has vegetation disappeared in the event of deforestation. Two million people in the world. One million animal and plant species face extinction. Part 3. A New Way. Systems Thinking. Of course, 
there's not just one way to view the world. So let's go back to the beginning again, back to 400 BC. Now, as we know, Plato's idea really travelled. Dualism spread all across Europe. But the one place it didn't really take off was China. To get from Greece to China in 400 BC, you'd have to go through Turkey, Iran, Afghanistan, probably Nepal, and then somehow get over the Himalayas. And when the fastest mode of transport you have is a horse and cart or a dugout canoe, that's a long journey. So back then, when China was also trying to figure out the meaning of the universe, they were doing so totally separated from the idea of dualism. And what they came up with was startlingly different. Instead of imagining two realms, the physical and the spiritual, they just had the one. Dao everlasting is the nameless uncarved wood. Though small, nothing under heaven can subjugate it. Dao, spelt T-A-O, was what they called the organising principle of the universe, the source of existence. And it was in everything. Here's Jeremy Lent again. There's this beautiful passage in a book by somebody called Zhuangzi, who's one of the great sages um, of, from Taoism from that time. And he's walking in this garden with this other kind of Confucian sages trying to understand Taoism. And this person, it's a little bit like, imagine like a Western person might have been saying, and the person is saying to Zhuangzi, where is the Tao then? Is it in the, the sky? And Zhuangzi says, yes. He says, well, is it in the earth? And he goes, Yes. He says, well, is it even in the kind of in those weeds down there? And he goes, yes. And he goes, well, what about the piss and shit? It can't be in that. And Drunk says, yes, it's there too. It's like it's everywhere, all around. The material is spiritual. Tao, the source of everything, is in the piss and the shit. Everything has value because it's part of the universe. It's a bit different to filthy sack of urine and excrement being the antithesis to God's love. Over time, the way dualism developed with Christianity, Taoism was developed by the Neo-Confucians. And they believed that Tao was made up of two things, qi and li. Qi is life's energy. It's what animates the entire world. It's both material and spiritual, and it's in everything. And it's always shifting, always in flux, like the world is. And li is the sort of organising principle. It's the rules that allow things to work together cohesively, even whilst those things are always changing. Like your cells renewing constantly, but you remaining the same person. Qi meant that everything had value, and Li meant that everything was connected. So the sages saw nature not as a machine, but as a living organism. And they saw the universe as a web of life on which humans were dependent. They saw humans not as separate from it, but is embedded in this web, essentially is kind of connecting heaven and earth as part of this, this kind of cosmic flow of, of connectivity. So they saw the true sort of meaning of life was to learn how to harmonize with the rest of life rather than to control it. The idea to them of dominating nature or humans being fundamentally separate from nature was kind of unthinkable. Tao everlasting is the nameless uncarved word. Though small, nothing under heaven can subjugate it. Instead of conquering nature, their root metaphor was to live in harmony with it. Now, this root metaphor didn't expand across the world in the same way as dualism. But if it had, perhaps it would have laid the foundation for a more sustainable society. 
a desire to live in harmony with nature instead of a desire to exploit it. But in this alternate reality, we then wouldn't have had the building blocks for scientific advancement in the same way. Because whilst it's a nice philosophy, it's not the basis for a scientific model. Right? In the 1960s, there was this mathematician called Edward Norton Lorenz, and he was trying to predict the weather. This is Matthew, another writer on the podcast. He did some research into an important moment. The moment where it became apparent, at least to one man, that modern science had been overlooking something. OK, so Lorenz was trying to make his own model of the weather on a state-of-the-art computer, something that hadn't been done before. And one day, in a rush to go and get a cup of tea, he rounded off one of his numerical inputs. He punched in 0.506 instead of 0.506127 or something. An infinitesimally small change. Then he went off, he made his cup of tea, and when he came back, he couldn't believe what he saw. The entire weather prediction had changed. Think sunny sky to raging storm. Which didn't make sense. If nature is the sum of its parts and works like a machine, small change should equal small difference. Obviously, Lorenz, being a scientist, became obsessed with this. He spent the next decade researching the implications. And about 10 years later, he came up with a theory that shook the scientific community. He was obsessed with understanding this mistake because if reductionism is based on the premise that the whole is the sum of its parts, then a tiny little change shouldn't have altered the entire system. It just didn't make any sense. But after the efforts of many scientists, Lorenz included, we now have a better understanding of why this happened and a whole new school of scientific thought to help explain it. Systems thinking. Systems thinking, if you haven't already guessed from the name, established the astounding truth that the basis of all living things, all nature, is systems. You know, systems, networks, connections. And that's very different to reductionism, which breaks things down and looks at the parts separately. Systems thinking makes us focus instead on the relationship between things, because it views these interconnected systems as a whole. OK, so this is all pretty confusing science, but bear with me because later on we'll go and look at a real example of this. And also, when you get it, you'll understand how nature works in a way that, as a society, we currently fail to. OK, so reductionism sees nature as a machine, right? Like, say, a jet engine. A jet engine is what we would call a complicated system. There's lots of tiny little components required for it to work. But when you put those little bits together, the system works the same every time. It's linear. The relationships are set, which means you can predict exactly how it will work. I mean, if you couldn't, you probably wouldn't want to catch your flight. Well, systems thinking shows us that nature doesn't work like that. Consider something as seemingly simple as a worm. A worm is also a system, a living system. It's made up of networks of tissues and cells, and then those cells are systems of networks and molecules, and the worm itself is part of a larger ecosystem. Well, all these elements that make up the worm interact and influence each other in ways that aren't the same every time. They feed back into the system in a non-linear way. The worm is a complex system, and complex is different to complicated. Any of these systems work according to complex 
nonlinear feedback effect where lots of parts are there, but they don't just have direct relationships with other parts, but those relationships are nonlinear and the effect of one part will feed back and then change the initial parts. All the different parts of the system affect the actual system as a whole. And the system as a whole then has an impact on the different parts. But what this means is that you can never exactly predict what that system will do. Hence why a tiny change in a weather system could result in sunny skies turning to stormy clouds. Living systems work as a whole. And amazingly, that whole can be more than the sum of its parts. If the system, with all its feedback and all those interactions, reaches a certain level of complexity, it starts to self-organise. And new properties can emerge that weren't possible or evident when looking at the individual components. They're only possible when the system works together. And this is something called emergence. You can see this in all sorts of living systems, ant colonies, murmurations of starlings, even water formulation, or our behaviour, language, stock markets, even, they think, consciousness could be emergence. And, of course, soil. Those complex physical, chemical and biological interactions between the plants, the animals, the climate dimensions and everything else means that the system self-organises and you get an emergent property. The ability for plants to grow. Because soil is a living system. And we know this. Like Anna said, it's the meeting place of life. It's all about relationships and connection. So no wonder our agricultural industry doesn't understand it. Our agricultural industry is built on reductionism, a scientific model that's all about analysing parts separately. And although this method led to Fritz's incredible invention of fertiliser, he was still only looking at one element in a complex system. And nobody thought about the rest of the system for years. We just pumped the soil full of fertiliser. And now we're degrading that soil, quickly destroying the prerequisite for life. Reductionism has given us incredible breakthroughs by helping us zone in on specific problems with specific solutions. But it's also led us to ignore the bigger picture, and not just with soil. When we overlook how interconnected everything is, we might overlook, for example, that healthy soil is one of the largest natural carbon sinks in the world. So restoring our soil means less carbon heating up our atmosphere. And forgetting how interconnected everything is also means we forget how dependent we are on our natural systems and how complex and changeable and fragile the Earth's systems are, including its climate. If we assume that the climate system is the sum of its parts, then it's all too easy to assume that it's linear and that we have control over it. And then we're tempted to play it close to the line on targets that are life or death. It also means that when we've got to fix something complex like climate change... We don't know how to think in terms of systems, to look at it as an interconnected system and to understand the problem in terms of root causes rather than just trying to deal with these isolated effects. Because as we know from episode one, that doesn't work. But what happened is reductionists got so focused on the success of their kind of project that they began to think that everything in the universe can be explained by breaking it down into its parts. And there's no other way of even making sense of the universe. 
That's where they got their sort of blind spot. And what systems thinking does is it doesn't reject that reductionist way of making sense of the universe, but it says in addition to that, the way in which things relate to each other actually leads to new principles like emergence, new levels of uh, organization, which can only be understood by actually trying to understand those principles of organization through which all these things are connecting. Systems thinking is a new way of looking at the world that expands and deepens our understanding of it. Or could it not be so new? Amazingly, this cutting-edge science actually lines up with the philosophy of Taoism almost perfectly. To go into all the parallels would take up a whole episode, but remember the Li, the organising principle that allows things to work together cohesively? Well, that concept is almost identical to the idea of systems self-organising, central to systems thinking. So this ancient, spiritual way of seeing the world actually got a lot of the scientific fundamentals right. Maybe its way of conceptualising our relationship to nature as something interconnected, independent and in need of harmony is a worldview that we could learn from. Lorenz won the Kyoto Prize two decades after his discovery and was said to have brought about one of the most dramatic changes to mankind's view of nature since Isaac Newton. But despite this, the mainstream approach remains reductionism, systems thinking is relegated to the fringe and our agricultural industry remains far, far behind still attempting to divide and conquer, still waging war on the landscape, and still destroying biodiversity in an attempt to gain control. And that's because it's really, really hard to change a brute metaphor. Hard, but not impossible. These are the sounds of me driving down to a farm in Kent, Loddington Farm. It's a fruit farm, grows apples and pears for juice. It's a cold November morning and the sun's just starting to set as I get there very late for the interview. I've come to talk to James Smith as his farm. It's been in his family since 1882. But the reason I've come to talk to him is because he's trying things differently from how they've been done before. Okay. Okay, sure. Yeah, yeah, alive or dead? Okay, that makes more sense. Cool. Okay. Right. Great. Sorry, I think there was a bit of confusion between. There, there was. I had. Uh, anyway, nice, nice to meet you. you. Really nice to meet you. I'm sorry it took me so long to get down here. No problem. Um, oh, I also now realise I'm getting just. Slightly... It's very much a working farm. We had to pause the interview when someone came to pick up a deer. There are whirring machines and a lot of mud, but it sits on a hill overlooking a valley covered in green, even in the dead of winter, and it smells sweet like fresh apples and blackberries. James is hard to age, could be anywhere from 30 to 40, sporting a sandy beard and wellies. He's energetic, but he has to be. He's juggling a lot, or going like a blue-arsed fly, as he puts it. But that's okay because he's found a new lease of life in the last few years. It wasn't always this way. Yeah, so we, at the time, we were probably 95% red apples to UK supermarkets. Okay, yeah. And and I was struggling, A, struggling to make it work financially, Mm. and B... In more recent years, I suppose, have been challenging myself with this, what I call the human dissonance. So it's the gap between what I love and admire about nature and how I felt we had to farm in order to be commercial fruit growers. James was farming by numbers, traditional farming, applying fertiliser, pesticides, growing a few different strains of tree, all in neatly numbered rows. But it wasn't working. He was intensifying his methods and getting less money each year, and doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different outcome can make you feel like you're going mad. 
So about six years ago, he was ready to quit. But then he went to a meeting where someone was talking about farming in a different way. And James was curious. Yeah, Yeah, wonderful. Deer picked up. We started walking around the farm so he could show me how he's changed things. The model that James learned about is called regenerative farming. It sees all the elements of nature not as separate parts to be cultivated in isolation, but as a system which requires a holistic approach. Sound familiar? It's an approach that comes from the only parts of our world still untouched by the dominant culture, where those root metaphors never took hold. Indigenous peoples. Distinct social and cultural groups that share collective ancestral ties to the lands and natural resources where they live. Their philosophy, their beliefs and their root metaphors are alien to Western culture. They align much more with that of ancient China. So perhaps it's no surprise then that despite making up only 5% of the world's population, they protect 80% of the world's remaining biodiversity. So in regenerative farming, you look at a specific area of land you're working with and you think, how do the ecosystems work best here? Because different plants and animals thrive in different places. And then you learn how to support these systems so as to help create the healthiest land possible. Well, I think the way I see it is that we, we're looking... What looking at regenerative farming has sort of done for me is that I now look at myself as sort of like an ecosystem manager and, and see my crop as part of a wider ecosystem rather than the ecosystem. You know, very, very often we focus on the above-ground part of a plant. We look at it, we, you know, we, we, we like to... Um, mineral analysis, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But we look at it in isolation, and then we try and fix those problems in a typical, you know, modern farming way. In that you see a problem, fix it; see a problem, fix it. Rather than looking for, uh, excusing the pun, but looking for root causes and, <laughs> and and addressing addressing some fundamental issues around the overall health of our land and mm. our soil. So there's no one size fits all approach, but there are principles, and the most important one: protecting the soil. The soil isn't tilled or disturbed, and its structure is protected and supported by the cover crops. But what I do know is that if you stop putting chemical on and let plants grow, soil improves. Yeah. It smells better, it looks better, there are more earthworms, there are some real basic things we can do mm. to, to see, the, you know, see the function of our yeah. soil. Well, is it literally, you can tell by the smell. And here's the thing. Farmers are starting to apply this principle... In fact, 75% of UK farmers have voiced the fact that they think regenerative practices are really important for the future of farming. Because farmers need to be able to grow food, so they're discovering a new way of doing things out of necessity. And in doing so, it's changing the way they see nature. It's changing the way they feel about nature. Yeah, absolutely. And do you think... Because there seems to be... You know, more and more farmers in the UK are coming to look at this more sort of natural, regenerative style of farming. Yeah. Do you think that's because it works? Yeah. Fundamentally. Yeah. Yeah. If you can show farmers that they can do something that is simple, that is inexpensive, and has a direct benefit for their business, then they'll crack on. They'll do it, yeah. And actually, when they start to do it and, and they start to see the benefits, then you sort of start to scratch the itch. You know, you, you kind of, you're, you're on the journey then. Yeah. And then it's like, well, what else can we do? And so you're driving around and there's pollen and nectar and there's diversity and there's, you know, it's, it, it, and it's, it, it really is, it really is kind of moving. And I think that's what's really heartening is as you drive around and when, you, when you're looking at the countryside with, you know, different eyes, um, you can see it happening. You know, there's fewer ploughs roaring up and down. 
you know, there still are some, but, you know, but the way people are farming and the different crops that are in the ground and, and this move towards, you know, a, a kinder way of farming, is, it's really encouraging. I started this episode talking about Fritz Haber, the man who changed forever how we wage war and how we grow food. A man whose legacy encompassed both the light and the dark. The brilliant light of scientific advancement, which has provided us with such abundance and health, and the dark of our desire to conquer the natural world. Our inability to value and understand systems of which we're inextricably a part. For years, we haven't been able to have the light without the dark. Advancement and understanding have always meant destruction and domination. They're two sides of the same coin. But the reason why talking to James gives me hope is that he shows there is a way out of this, a way that allows us to make the most of nature whilst also appreciating the complexity of its relationships and our relationship to it. All it takes is a reconsideration of our roots, the roots down in the dark of the soil and the roots in our past that determine how we see the world and everything in it. You've been listening to The Water We Swim In. Next week, we're trying to understand our economic goal by looking at Darren Brown and donuts. If you're interested in finding out more about systems thinking, Loddington Farm, or how to protect our soil, head on over to our website, waterwesweamin.co.uk. There's a lot of extra cool stuff on there. If you enjoyed the episode, please rate and review on iTunes. It really helps other people find us. Producing this episode was me, Tilly Robinson. Co-writing was Matthew Robinson. Mixing by Naked Productions, with original music by Dream McFarlane.